It helps us see what baptism is really all about. So if you have a Bible, turn with me please to Luke chapter 20. And if you don't have one, there are some... Actually, I think they've all gone. There might be some on the table at the back. Luke chapter 20. And in the church Bible, you'll find that on page 1054. Luke chapter 20. And I'll read the first 19 verses of the chapter. One day, as he, that's Jesus, was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? They discussed it among themselves and said, if we say from heaven, he will ask, why didn't you believe him? But if we say from men, all the people will stone us because they are persuaded that John was a prophet. So they answered, we don't know where it was from. Jesus said, neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. He went on to tell the people this parable. A man planted a vineyard, rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants, so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third And they wounded him and threw him out. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. Then the inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. Jesus looked directly at them and asked, Then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. This is God's word. We'll look at this passage together and then we'll ask what it has to do with baptism. Maybe you've come here today curious about baptism. Why on earth would a grown man choose to be dunked in a big tank of water? Well, this story helps us see what baptism is all about. And first of all, in verses 1 to 8, we find a question. Who is in charge? The context here is that Jesus has arrived in Jerusalem just prior to this. He's arrived being proclaimed as God's anointed king. 
In chapter 19, the crowd said, Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. The Pharisees thought that kind of talk was not appropriate for Jesus. The Pharisees were part of the leadership of the Jewish people. And they tried to get Jesus to silence those who were calling him king. But Jesus refused to do that. And instead of diffusing the situation, Jesus proceeded to march into the temple in Jerusalem and take charge of the temple. So as our passage begins, the leaders of the Jews are already pretty worked up. The leaders are referred to using various terms. Pharisees, we've already heard. Then there were the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. These were the people with authority in Israel. They were in charge of worship at the temple. They made the decisions about what was right and wrong. They were in charge of deciding what pleased God and what displeased God. And they were the official interpreters and teachers of Scripture. That's what we know today as the Old Testament. When we realize the power that these leaders of the Jews had, we can sense the tension when Jesus arrives claiming the title of king. And then he walks into the temple, kicks over their tables, throws them out in the street, and then starts teaching in the temple. It raises the whole question of who is really in charge. And it raises the question in a pretty urgent way. Who has authority in this situation? And so we're told in verses 1 and 2, One day as he was teaching the people in the temple courts and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the teachers of the law, together with the elders, came up to him. Tell us by what authority you are doing these things, they said. Who gave you this authority? The question of authority is crucial. These leaders realize that when it comes to who's in charge, it's either Jesus or them. And this question of authority is equally important for you and me. Our situation, of course, is very different from these leaders of the Jews. But the question facing us is exactly the same. When it comes to my life and your life, who's in charge? This is Luke chapter 20. Chapter 23 records the crucifixion of Jesus. Chapter 24 presents us with a resurrected Jesus. And this is the claim made by the resurrected Jesus. He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Before his death, Jesus claimed authority over the nation of Israel. After his resurrection, he claims authority over all nations. And he claims authority over every individual. He says to you and me, I'm in charge. I have authority over you. So the question of authority is just as live for us today as it was for these leaders of the Jews 2,000 years ago. And it's also a question that tends to provoke us. Most people can sit and listen to stories about Jesus and stay pretty relaxed. But when Jesus says, I'm in charge... That gets a reaction from us. It certainly got a reaction from these Jewish leaders. The end of chapter 19 told us they were trying to kill Jesus 
when he asserted his authority in Jerusalem. So we know that their question here is not an innocent question. It's an aggressive question. Who do you think you are? What are your credentials? You're not even a priest. You're a carpenter. What right have you to act like you own this city and this temple? Well, Jesus isn't going to get into that kind of argument. And so he responds to them, not with an answer, but with another question. Verse 3. He replied, I will also ask you a question. Tell me, John's baptism, was it from heaven or from men? The John here is John the Baptist. John had come preparing the way for Jesus. John's whole ministry was to show people their sin and then to point them to Jesus as God's appointed Savior from their sin. One of the things John did was baptize those who wanted to turn their back on sin. And very simply, Jesus brings John into the discussion in order to shut these leaders up. Verses 5 to 7 tell us they don't want to admit that John was God's messenger. If they did, they'd have to accept Jesus too. But they don't want to say that John was a fake because the people were persuaded that John truly was a prophet from God. And the leaders believed the people would stone them if they denounced John. So they won't answer Jesus' question. And so he says to them in verse 8, Neither will I tell you by what authority I am doing these things. Jesus has refused to answer their question directly. But he does answer their question. He does it by telling a story. And the story Jesus tells is not just about farmers in ancient Palestine. It's not just about the nation of Israel. It's about you and me. In verses 9 to 19, Jesus tells the story of our lives. The story opens by introducing the owner and the tenants in verse 9. A man planted a vineyard rented it to some farmers, and went away for a long time. These opening words of the story are crucial for understanding the story. We're told who planted and who owns the vineyard. Everything that follows hinges on this. The farmers were not there at the beginning. They did not plant the vineyard. They don't own the vineyard. They have been brought in to cultivate the vineyard for the owner's benefit. They are guardians and stewards of the owner's property. And they are accountable to the owner. It's his vineyard. He's in charge. Now this was true for the nation of Israel. Many hundreds of years before Jesus came, God had chosen Abraham. He caused Abraham's descendants to grow into a great nation. God had given the Israelites a land of their own. He'd blessed them in many other ways. They were his. He was in charge. And in a wider sense, this opening verse of the story applies to the whole human race. The opening chapters of the Bible tell us God made this world that we live in. He made each one of us. And we're here to serve him in his world. 
He has authority over us. Our lives are not our own. In the terms of this story, God is the owner, we are the tenants. But look what happens next in Jesus' story. Verse 10. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants so they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. He sent another servant, but that one also they beat and treated shamefully and sent away empty-handed. He sent still a third, and they wounded him and threw him out. The tenants act like owners. It's perfectly reasonable for the owner of the vineyard to claim what's his. But the tenants refuse to give the owner what belongs to him. They won't recognize his authority. They deny that he has any claim on them. And that certainly played itself out in the history of Israel. In the early days of that nation, God said to Israel, Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. In other words, God gave Israel a special job to do in his world. He went on to give Israel his law. That law reflected what God himself was like, what he loved and what he hated. And by keeping that law, Israel was to show the world what God was like. But they didn't. They lived as if their lives were their own. God sent a long line of prophets to call Israel back to God. But at best, the prophets were ignored, and in many cases, they were abused by the people. The Old Testament has a recurring statement that everyone did as he or she saw fit. Literally, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As far as Israel was concerned, what was right in God's eyes was beside the point. And what about the rest of the world? What about us? Do we live like tenants or like owners? Don't we live by the assumption that our life is our own? In terms of our time and energy? our finances, our sexual behavior? Don't we live like we are the captains of our own ship? We set our own course. We live by our own priorities. We do what is right in our own eyes. As far as many people are concerned, God is beside the point. What has he got to do with us? If we're honest, we have to admit that we live like owners, not tenants. That's certainly true of non-religious people, and in many cases it's true of religious people as well. Yes, we're happy to throw God a bone now and again. We go to church, give to charity, say a prayer. But many of us resist the idea that God is in charge of our lives. We draw the line at the notion that he has the right to tell us how to live. We live like owners, not tenants. But let's forget for a moment that this story has any application to us. Let's imagine we're watching this story unfold in front of us. The owner of the vineyard has been denied what belongs to him. His claims on his property have been rejected. 
he has given repeated, non-threatening opportunities for the tenants to acknowledge his authority. All of those opportunities have been rejected. What do we expect next? Surely we expect the tenants to be evicted by force. Actually, we wouldn't be surprised to see them being wiped out at this point. We certainly don't expect what actually happens. Verse 13 describes an amazing decision. Look at it again. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I will send my son, whom I love. Perhaps they will respect him. This is a decision of almost unbelievable patience and grace. These tenants have shown their character very clearly. But instead of arriving with an army and using force against them, the owner sends the most precious thing he has, his son. And the son walks into this hostile situation alone, unarmed. He walks into the place where previous servants have been treated shamefully and rejected. And wounded. And the New Testament tells us this is exactly what God the Father did. He sent His Son, not only to a nation, but to a world that had repeatedly rejected His authority. Where we would have expected God to send a destroying army, He sent His Son. And the son came into the most vulnerable circumstances, born as a baby in a poor family. The owner of this world sent his son not with a destroying army, but alone and unarmed. Let's pause at this point in the story and ask why God the Father did this. Why did he send his dearly loved son into a hostile world? And why did the son come? The New Testament tells us it was for our salvation. Instead of pouring out punishment on us, God's son came to take our punishment. When Jesus died on the cross, on one level, it was one more rejection of God's authority. But on another level, it was the greatest display of God's grace and mercy. Sin and evil cannot be ignored. They must be punished. Jesus Christ came alone and unarmed to take that punishment in our place. He gave up his life so we could be reconciled to the God who made us and who owns us. If we will own up to our rebellion against God, and if we will take hold of the mercy God offers us in Jesus, then the story of our lives will take a dramatic turn. We will change from rebellious tenants into forgiven children and heirs. We can begin a new life, living the way we were created to live, under God's good and loving authority. Unfortunately, for many people, the desire to rule their own lives causes them to reject Jesus. 
Look what happens here in the story as the son arrives at his father's vineyard. Verse 14. But when the tenants saw him, they talked the matter over. This is the heir, they said. Let's kill him. The inheritance will be ours. So they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. When the people heard this, they said, May this never be. The final verses of our passage spell out the cost of rejecting the son. The owner of the vineyard has given the most precious thing he had. There is no greater grace that can be offered to these tenants. Those who reject his son have no future. They have no options left. The owner will hold them accountable for their actions. And Jesus' audience respond to him by saying, may this never be. They seem to be denying that this story has any relevance to them. But look what Jesus goes on to say. Verse 17, Jesus looked directly at them and asked, then what is the meaning of that which is written? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. The teachers of the law and the chief priests looked for a way to arrest him immediately because they knew he had spoken this parable against them, but they were afraid of the people. The quotation about the stone is from Psalm 118 in the Old Testament. The capstone, or it could be the cornerstone, seems to have been a foundation stone that bore the the weight of the whole building. Jesus has told this story because he knows he's going to be rejected and killed. And he wants the people to know that God will raise him and give him the highest place. God's son will rise from the dead and one day he will come back. He will come with his father's authority to bring God's judgment on those who reject him. That's the point of verse 18. The rejected stone will one day become the crushing stone. But the first time Jesus came to earth, he didn't come to crush God's enemies. He came to be crushed for God's enemies. And yet the New Testament is very clear. Those who reject God's mercy in Jesus will one day face God's just judgment. The one who was crushed for our salvation will crush those who reject God's mercy. Well, what does all of this have to do with baptism? The connection is the issue of authority. When someone is baptized, they are saying publicly, I own up to my rebellion against God. My life has always belonged to God, but I've been living as if I was the owner, the captain of my own ship. I recognize that I deserve punishment, but I take hold of God's offer of mercy. I trust that Jesus' death was in my place. It was for my salvation. And from now on, I commit to live under God's authority. From now on, he is in charge of my life. Jesus is my Savior, yes, and also my Lord. That's what baptism is symbolizing. 
When someone is baptized, of course, they've already made that commitment. Baptism is just a public testimony of what's already happened. It's been called an outward sign of an inward faith. So there's nothing magical about baptism. There's nothing special about the water. If there was, we'd be bottling it and selling it. Baptism is just a way of going public about the change that's happened in our life. And don't get the wrong idea. When someone is baptized, it's not the end of their struggles. We all have this tendency in us to want to take back authority, to reassert our own control in our lives. Every Christian struggles with that in one way or another. And Adam will too. And so baptism is a way of saying, I'm committed to this new life. Stand with me. Encourage me to keep going. It's a little bit like a wedding. Until a couple actually get married, no one's really quite sure where they stand with one another. How committed are they in the relationship? But once they take the public step of marriage, they're really saying to their friends and family, we're serious about this. We want your help and support. You have our permission to hold us to our commitment. Baptism has that same kind of public commitment. Adam is saying this morning that he is serious about this. So as friends and family and as a church, let's support him in his commitment. Not just today, but from now on. And I encourage everyone here to think about your own commitment to Jesus. Maybe you've already been baptized. But are you still committed to Jesus as your Savior and your Lord? Are you living to serve him or to serve yourself? But maybe you've never even considered what I've been talking about this morning. Maybe it's news to you that God claims authority over your life. If that's the case, then please do consider what we've been thinking about this morning. It's the most important issue you ever will consider. In just a few moments, Adam is going to come up here to the front and he's going to share with us what led him to this point of baptism. But before that, we're going to sing again. And most of our songs this morning have been chosen by Adam. This song is Light of the World. <laughs> 